Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Islington Mill is Queer. Islington Mill is Queer is a monthly podcast series dedicated to shining a light on the history and the queer individuals who shaped that history of one of the UK's best-loved artistic powerhouses. And it's also, um, among other things, it has been a music venue. It's been a film, uh, cinema kind of space. It's been an art gallery. And it's soon going to be a cooperative living space as well. That space is, of course, Salford's Islington Mill. And my name is The Nihilist. This month's episode of Islington Mill is Queer is a bit different. It's a bit of a deviation from the plan. We are still in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, unfortunately, at the moment. And that means that a lot of people are currently in isolation, being directed to do so by the government and by the health officials. And that includes myself, the nihilist, and my partner, Joe Spencer. So we had to do a bit of rejigging this month to do an interview that didn't involve breaking quarantine. So for that interview, I have decided to interview my partner, who I am currently isolating with, Mr. Joe Spencer. You might know Joe better as Joyce Division. He is a star of stage and screen, and his relevance to this interview series is that me and Joe have produced and put on a lot of different events at Islington Mill over the years, most notably um, the John Waters 24-hour film marathon, the Zombie Pride Halloween events, various Vogue brawls, and some different events under the name Tranarchy. Perhaps our best-known event, though, was the annual Bummer Camp that happened every summer at Islington Mill, featuring a live performance by the queer icon Christine. Both Joe and I are performers and um, promoters in our own right, but I think it's fairly fair to say at this stage that Joe Spencer is basically the face of queer Manchester and greater Manchester. He is, by his own admission, um, a creative producer. He's also uh, a stage manager, an event promoter, an event producer. He's a performer. He's a touring professional dancer in the um, show Fat Blokes, which is going to be going on tour around the world next year. So he's got a lot of different strings to his bow. But for this interview, I wanted to keep it focused on me and his relationship and the work that we have done at Islington Mill, which includes, as you will hear in the interview, going on national daytime TV to represent the mill to the general British public. Just a couple of things to note before we start the interview, though. As I said, we conducted this interview in our house, in the living room, as we're isolating. So the sound quality might be a bit different from what you're usually accustomed to hearing, which is recorded in the mill itself. And the other thing is, uh, we get pretty sweary in this one. So this interview does contain strong language. If you're listening in the company of sensitive ears, please take that into consideration. So without further ado, I'm going to stop waffling on. And I'm going to hand over to myself to continue waffling on. This is episode four of Islington Mill is Queer with special guest, the Joe Spencer. Joe Spencer, welcome to Islington Mill is Queer. How are you doing, my love? Hi, yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Good. That's good to know. Um... Yeah, so we have something that we need to disclose to the audience before we get underway with this interview. What might that be? Um... I don't know. What is it? 
<laughs> Me and you are a couple, right? But yes. Yes, we are engaged. We are engaged to be married. So we know each other pretty damn well. And this isn't just going to be a straightforward interview where I'm interviewing you. It's going to be a bit of a weird one where you're going to also repeat the questions to me that I ask you so that I can answer them. It's a bit of a joint back and forth interview that we're going to get going on. Um, And the reason that we are doing this joint interview together is not just because we're a couple, but also because we have worked together in the past, especially at Islington Mill which is what this interview is all about. And me and you used to do a thing called... Yeah, Tranicky. We've had quite a long creative partnership. We have, um, yeah. We lots have of different monikers, different names. Yeah. None of them being Monica. <laughs> Would you care to divulge <laughs> some of those other monikers? Like, what do you do, Joe Spencer? Um, me, I, I don't really know how to... I don't really know what to describe myself as. I guess it'd be cr- creative producer, mm-hmm. but... I'm not really, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that is a term, creative producer, but I'm just too fucking working class to give myself such highfalutin titles. <laughs> um, I put on shows and events and look after showgirls and, mm-hmm. yeah, clean up dressing rooms and, yeah, promote things, culture, art. Yeah. You're an, an event manager, I'd say, would be quite a good way of doing it because you do manage events. Mm-hmm. You also manage venues. Um, the different things that come into those venues but more so than that you are a star of yes. stage and screen aren't you yes so performed under the name Joyce Division mm-hmm. uh, which is very familiar to the mill um, and I've also been in the touring production Fat Blokes and probably lots of other things that I can't quite remember what what is it that people come up to you in the street and go oh oh yeah four in a bed fucking <laughs> hell We'll have to talk about that on here, aren't we? Right, yeah, fine. we are going to have to talk about your that's appearance fine. on Four to Bed. A pissed person outside Pierre out going, hey, you. Yeah. So that's fine. Yeah. That's all right. Which I think it's been repeated at least twice this year already because. It, it gets, yeah, it gets repeated so much. It's like I've been followed around Primark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not pulling my own dick here, but it seems to get repeated way more than any of the ones. Our yeah. run of episodes seems to be always on. Yeah, no, it really does. So, it's, it's a, it gets repeated at least once a year because there's always somebody who's like, "Oh, I saw your fellow yeah. on the telly." Um, but this year, I'm pretty sure it's already been repeated twice. I think, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I've had two different people coming up to me and going, "Oh, I've seen your fellow on the telly," and like months apart, so it wouldn't have been the same run. No, no, no. So yeah, I am convinced that your uh, iteration, many runs of four in the bed, has gone out twice this year. <clears throat> Okay, Four in the Bed is very relevant to this interview, though, because Four in a Bed was based around the B&B that Mm -hmm. was at Islington Mill. So this is Islington Mill is Queer. We're going to be talking mostly about Islington Mill and detouring into our own lives and creative projects and that kind of thing. I have the traditional first question that I ask everyone. And remember, you can also fire this question at me when you're done answering it. The first question that I ask everyone who comes on to Islington Mill is Queer is... Do you remember the first time you saw Islington Mill? Yes, I do. Um, I was at university in Liverpool and I'd just done a, a module called Evil in America and I'd written an essay on uh, Dennis Cooper um, and we'd had to read Dennis Cooper's book Frisk and then I saw that Dennis Cooper was bringing his show Jerk to the Queer Up North Festival and he was going to be there and then there was a live stage show. Not live stage, well, one, one person show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was performed by somebody else. Um, so, yeah, so 
I didn't know anything about Islington Mill. I remember like printed this is old school. I print, print the directions off mm. in the university library and like took them with us. Mm-hmm. And then we got off Oxford Road and walked all the way down. We didn't really we didn't know where it was, and we didn't realise it was kind of out the city. So we had a nice little walk, and then I think we got there and we were really unsure of like of the building. Mm. Um, yeah, and then we got and we're in the right place, and it was a really really good show. Um, and then I remember being in the smoking area, and Dennis Cooper was there. But I was kind of, <laughs> his work's very transgressive and it's very intense. And I didn't really want to approach him and go, hello, tell me about your work. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, but I remember I was just being stupid, chatting to me, mate, and he laughed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the first time I went to the mill, was see Dennis Cooper. So very queer, very, very, very queer. Yeah, uh, could you just tell us quickly who Dennis Cooper is? Uh, transgressive writer. Um, what does transgressive mean? Oh, God. This was a long time ago at university, you know. I don't remember all this. Oh, I don't mean the university. I just yeah, give us the no, layman's I mean, definition like, of what is transgressive. Uh, yeah, well, it's literature or any kind of art form that pushes the boundaries, that transgresses. Mm-hmm. So his work is a lot about sex, a lot about rape, a lot about child abuse. Um, so fun, fun, fun. Mm. Um, <laughs> awesome. That yeah. was the first time you ever went to Islington. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it was for Queer Up North Festival. Um, it was, yeah, they'd put the show on. Um, and it was, yeah, it was It was a really, like, it was a really good space to kind of see that kind of work as well. Um, and it was, it was, the bar was in a completely different place where it is now. I don't think the gallery was there. Um, yeah, it was very much still, I think at that stage, it very much, well, it's always like a mill, but it was very still in like the early stages of it, I mm. think, I guess, 2000 and, no, it was probably 2008, actually, yeah, it was 2008, because it was the year that I graduated that we went. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then it was kind of, in my last year of being in, in university in Liverpool, I was starting to feel that, like, God, Liverpool's a lovely city, but there's very little queer scene there at that time. Mm. Um, so it was kind of going to places like the mill and bollocks that then kind of inspired me to kind of move to Manchester because mm-hmm. it kind of gave me a sign of like, oh, actually, there's a really good, interesting queer art scene here. There's mm-hmm. lots of culture, lots going on. Um, yeah. So we can blame us into the mill yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely was from the place that me think, oh, wow, this is cool. Mm. I can see myself here. Yeah. Um, yeah. When was your first time? Um, my first time, I was actually thinking about this the other day, actually. Uh, first time I ever went to Islington Mill, I had just moved to Manchester and I'd been was living in Wally Range at the time. Uh, the reason I moved to Manchester, similar to you, I was I was living in Glasgow up to that point. Um, but I'd come to a couple of things in Manchester and thought the queer and gay life in the city is for me right now. I wanted to move to somewhere with lots of gay people and lots of really like active queer scene. And not going to lie, I wanted to find a boyfriend. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. So I came down to Manchester to... I stayed a couple of times with the guys who run the club Chips With Everything. Mm -hmm. There are two guys called Lee and one guy called Rob. Lovely guys. And when I had moved to... When I was living in Wally Range, when I just moved to Manchester, uh, one of the guys, one of the lads from Chips, probably Lee, um, contacted me to say that he was doing a gig in Islington Mill with a band called Kings Have Long Arms which is Adrian from Sheffield, who now does Adult Entertainment, who we played with at mm-hmm. Halloween. Um, and I was a really big fan of that band then, and I wanted to go and turn out to my mate's gig. Um, so I went to Islington Mill, and I got a cab. And I have quite a distinct memory of the being in the black cab, going over Trinity Way, um, under the railway bridge, That you, if you ever get the taxi to Islington Mill from 
Manchester, basically, and it goes via Regent's Road around the massive roundabout there. It would come off Trinity Way and take you up underneath the railway bridge, which I think everybody will recognise if you've ever gotten a cab to Islington Mill. And yeah, I just have this really distinct memory of like being in this cab in the nice early summer sun, going to a place where mates were playing a gig and just feel like, oh, I'm in this new place. Or, like, I don't know where I'm going. It looks exciting. It's cool. And then I got to Islington Mill and it was like, this place is awesome. Um, when I was previous to living in Manchester, I was living in Glasgow and I had been involved in some kind of like reclaimed warehouse arts spaces myself. I had been heavily involved in one called the Chateau, which was founded by Franz Ferdinand in 2002 before they moved to London. So I'd come from that kind of like warehouse background artsy scene already. But unfortunately, the chateau was, uh, was there was an arson attack one night. So that ended not very well. So when I came to Islington Mill, I found it really quite inspiring because it was like, this is kind of like the scene that I've come from in Glasgow that I'll be looking for again. But Islington Mill is doing what we were trying to do in the Chateau much, much better. It was already, yeah, Kings of Long Arms played in the venue room. The bar was at the back wall, like you said, but the stage was up. So it was kind of very much like venue-ish. It was basically set up the way it was going to be for the next however many years that was. Um, and I just found it really inspiring. It was like a great gig, great to see my mates, but also really nice to go to Islington Mill and find that space in greater Manchester that I'd come from in Glasgow and feel like this is somewhere I could fit in. Oh, lovely. So do you remember our first time at Islington Mill together? You know what? I do. And I don't. <laughs> this is a really nice story, though. We went down there together to take part in the video recording for our friend Zsa Zsa Noir, mm-hmm. who had um, just recorded and released a single called Hey Lean Diggy Doggy. And we went to the mill together in all our kind of ratchet punk finery yeah. um, to go to the fifth floor to be dancing around on the fifth floor while Zsa Zsa, a.k.a. Michael, was in the foreground playing a keyboard on an ironing board, possibly, mm. and singing into a microphone. Yeah. And I'm sure there was like a bunch of people that we met there that are still part of our scene and our crew. Um, but I do remember Jane Compton was there. Mm-hmm. Because it was Switch Flicker Records that were putting the Zsa Zsa Noir single out. And definitely Amy Waite was yeah, there. Yeah, Amy, Paul Forrester. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, because I remember we were on the top floor, on the fifth floor. Yeah. And it was freezing cold. Yes, it was freezing it cold. It was like ice coming up the window. So we they had, it was when they had the Wendy houses. So in between takes, we'd all get into a Wendy house. Yes. And it had a, the wall. You had a heater in I think they yeah. had one heater inside the little shed thing. Yeah. And people would just sit in there to try and warm up between takes of dancing around. And also the other thing I remember is it was fucking filthy. It was covered in pigeon shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was really horrible. And I mean, you know, fair enough, up until about a month ago, it yeah. was still pretty horrible as well. Currently happening on the fifth floor of Islington Mill for uh, listeners who might not know this. It's being refurbished, hoping to have that done by the end of this year. And then it'll be opened up as a residence space. So, I'm sure the listenership are dying to know, how did we start working together, Joe and Niall? Um, so, I was looking at doing a Vogue ball, um, and then just through Facebook kind of found you, and then you were like, oh, I've done Vogue, I've, we, you just did a Vogue ball with Menergy. Mm-hmm. Um So that's kind of how we met, and then 
in January 2011, we put on Vogue Brawl at Legends, mm-hmm. um, and then that went really well. And then from that, we just started putting events together mm-hmm. and working together on, on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I've been involved in Glasgow running a club night called Menergy with a drag queen there called Lady Munter. And I think we'd done two Vogue Balls up to that point in Glasgow. And then I think it was a mutual friend of ours, James Size and Bell, who put us in touch with each other because he knew that you were wanting to put on a Vogue Ball and that I had done one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, January 2011 was when we hosted the first Vogue Brawl. Mm-hmm. That was in Legends. And that popped off. Yeah, yeah. That absolutely popped off. Like, I think what I had been looking for and couldn't find in Glasgow, people in Manchester were gagging mm. for. Like, the scene for that was here, and they were gagging for the things that we were just about to bring them. So we did Vogue Brawl in January 2011, and it was by far the most successful thing I'd ever done or been involved in doing mm. up to that point. And from there, we were just like, this is a really good working relationship. We should keep doing things. And... Yeah, then we there was also Zombie Pride. Do you want to tell us a bit about Zombie Pride? That was your annual Halloween party, right? Yeah, yeah so um, during this time I was working for what was then the LGF, now the LGBT Foundation, um, and I was working for them as a community fundraising officer. So kind of part of my job, as well as shaking buckets, was to um, manage uh, fundraising, run and produce fundraising events. Um, so one of them we did at Legends annually was Zombie Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you put me on at Zombie Pride yeah, actually in yeah. June 2010. 2010, yeah, yeah, in Dots Bar. Yeah, in the carpeted mm-hmm. bar in Legends. Um, there was a stage invasion, but it was a French tourist who wouldn't get off my fucking stage. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So it was yeah. This is kind of very early, and then we're getting into very early Tranicky days. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was just kind of around the time when. Um, this was pre-Drag Race. Well, Drag Race was on the air, but it wasn't on the air in the UK. It was only on, like, season two. Mm. And you could only find it, I think, at, like, one o'clock on Channel 4 or E4. Really, mm. like, so it wasn't... Drag Race wasn't a thing. But then what there was is there was a lot of this kind of new style of drag talent coming up. So this kind of drag that was very not the village, very much not the village... Um, we're starting to bubble up and we're starting to emerge and then it was me and you that started to kind of see from doing Vogue Brawl like oh actually there's there's something happening here this is like and there isn't there's there's no nights for these people to go to because mm. queer clubbing at that time was very indie and it, well, I, to be honest just culture at the moment at that moment was very indie and it mm. wasn't as I don't feel like it was. It was as glam and it was as as, as fab mm. and as kind of trashy as, as as there was a market for. So that's where we kind of started to put Tranaki together mm-hmm. um, because, like, Queen's actually in the Blige, Shia Noir. Kurt Dirk. Kurt Dirk. Yeah, and we were kind of coming at it from a very kind of DIY punk. Mm-hmm. And there was, that, it was a really, like, nice moment in, like, in, like, queer clubbing and queer dress and drag dress that it was cheap and it was messy and it wasn't polished you know we had a phase of wearing squeaky dog toys on necklaces we had a real big period of that babe and just like cheap Primark leggings Mm -hmm. and a jersey dress and it didn't matter and it was a really nice time for kind of expression in that way Mm. um which is which which I think it's, it's sad that that's there's there's such a high expectation on drag and on looks now um 
that that wasn't there then. Um, yeah, so that was that was kind of it, and that we were just we were kind of making things around 2011, 2002, putting on these events um, when this was kind of just bubbling up. Yeah, and we just started to see this like younger generation coming through. Um, you know, there were these kids that were, were probably actual kids <laughs> at the time. Yeah. We were like, well, um, it's safer yeah. for them to come in our clubs yes. than it is for them because they were coming into Manchester and they were coming into Manchester just to like just hang out and we were like well no it's safer for us to get them in the clubs mm-hmm. um, and like look after them mm-hmm. um, because otherwise it's just going to be you know they're coming into Manchester anyway to get yeah. in um, possibly even safer in our clubs than just hanging <laughs> yeah, out absolutely. on Canal Street yeah yeah definitely yeah mm-hmm. and then like for real though yeah like... and I think from the start we had a very with Trinicky from the start we were very not the village yeah we were very anti the village yeah. to us other we were because we're both fat to these other bodies mm. i mean to any other body to anybody who's who's not um, a slim white twink mm-hmm. really though it, it's 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 not a very nice space for you so we were very anti-village also it was just rubbish like the music was shit it was you know i mean it's something that i've said a lot but there's a drag queen in the village and she's called Lowest Common Denominator and she plays every fucking night in the village. It's just rubbish. So we were very against the village. So that's kind of why we'd work with, why we'd work at Legends because Legends was a perfect space because it was near enough to the village but not in the village. Mm-hmm. And once you were there, you were there for the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was cheap as yeah, chips. and it was cheap. So we kind of, and already we're trying to keep made a point of creating spaces that weren't around the village so I think it was really natural progression for us to start to work at the mill um, especially because leading up to us putting our things on at the mill we'd been to so many good stuff like Off With mm-hmm. Their Heads mm-hmm. Cheryl um, Saturday the City mm-hmm. and then even just all the fat out gigs the noise gigs even all that stuff mm-hmm. so um, okay well here's a good question do you remember our first event that we, not that we did and promoted, but that like, we were involved in that we put on or we, you know, had a room or whatever, had an act at? Um, the first one, I think, was it probably off with our heads for the Royal Wedding? Yes. And I did Joyce's redacted, redacted <laughs> wedding. Um, at the time, it was... It was a different time, well, a different culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we did a... Yeah, yeah, Joe's Division did a performance at the, the Royal, off with their heads, the Royal Wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. I did watch Chicken Light with the chimney on her. And stri- yeah. Yes, that's right. And your sister Katie was there as the bridesmaid. Yes. Yeah, and we had like, a wedding party. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, that was camp. I think that was the first thing that we did. Yeah, I think it was actually. And I think I was dressed as a bishop. Yeah. And then I got splashed in blood. And there's a really lovely picture of me somewhere looking a bit like a Francis Bacon painting of yeah, a Pope yeah. with blood dripping down me, which is pretty cool. I'm very happy with that. Yeah. So, how did that hookup come about with Off With Their Heads? Uh, so, I was asked by uh, Riv Burns. Oh, yeah. Um, Riv, who did the first interview for the series? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Riv's done Off With Their Heads and knew them just from doing Joyce Division, being out and about. Um, yes, yeah, so that's how I got involved in the... Uh, Royal Wedding Off With Their Heads. And then the mill's just a really good place where if you're somebody that's kind of creative, got something about it, it's really easy to get involved in stuff. It's really easy to be a part of stuff. Um, and it's really welcoming in that respect. So, 
I think we did things with Cheryl. We did a couple of parties with Cheryl where mm-hmm. we'd like perform and just be involved and help yeah. make stuff, like crafting Sh- stuff for shows. Cheryl are a New York were a New York based um, interactive party crew who came over to Manchester it was about 2012, I think. Was yeah, yeah. And those, those shows were like a real revelation. Yeah. I think for us, because they were just so creative with it, they, yeah. was, they were just so, the whole show, every from the moment you stepped foot through the door to the moment you left, it was so like conceptual and interactive. Yeah. And like the themings were brilliant and it was just really, really well produced, really fun shows and they were brilliant to work with, really fun. They were so, like what we were trying to be. They were yeah, doing it. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely in a way. And they were really inspiring to us. And so they were really welcome in and it was really easy to kind of get on board with their shows. And then everyone just kind of worked with everyone in a really nice way. So from working with Cheryl, we met Volkov Commanders. And then, Mm. so we did, I think possibly one of my favourite ever things to ever happen, like in the mill or to come from the mill was their orbit, which was kind of at a halfway point between sounds. So it's kind of like a mini sounds. Mm -hmm. And that was in a few venues uh, around Chapel Street area. Um, and we did uh, the planet dance with them in the church where we did like a really cute like dance moment where we're all dressed as big planets and um, we like burst out of orbit mm-hmm. uh, to rocket to your heart. And that was a really gorgeous moment. Um, yeah, and just generally, just New Year's Eve parties, Towns of the City, there was always kind of something that you were always kind of could be involved in. Mm. And it was really welcoming in that way as well. Really nice, really um, positive, inclusive and accessible place to kind of make art and create art. Yeah, I always found Islington Mill, from the first minute I set foot in there, I always found it a very, it was without, it wasn't, this wasn't what they were aiming to do necessarily, but it was in a way a safe space. Mm, oh yeah. It felt very safe, very inclusive when you were there, you could just be who you actually are and nobody really gave two shits because a lot of the people there were also quite weird, yeah. so it was really nice to go there. But yeah, definitely Islington Mill has always felt very inclusive and very welcoming, certainly to us anyway. And it was it was just nice to come from kind of working in other nightlife spaces where it was really important that like that club made money. Yeah. It was really nice to work yeah. at a space where the bar making money obviously is an important factor in it, but not not the but actually having a great making a great night, creating great work was more important than kind of making money and creating culture and creating network and community was was way higher up than than making money on the bar, um, and which meant it was a really easy space to put something on because the higher fee was minimal. I think you just paid for security. That mm-hmm. was it, which fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so then from being involved in things at the mill, performing at stuff, um, doing gigs and things like that. Um, and legends close. Yeah. And yeah. And obviously, and then, then, yeah. So I guess the big moment for us to kind of work, it was legends closed and that kind of really did kind of, um, Unhouse a lot of a lot of nights, a lot of things, and so it's very natural for us to then move that to the mill because, similar to, legends, the mill was kind of was out was away from the village, and when you're at there, you've got your own space. It's mm-hmm. you know what I mean. You've got your own smoking area. You, you kind of got your own. You there. You there for the night, and you save that. Yeah, one thing that is different about Islington Mill than other venues as well is the licensing. Yeah. Like, Stuff would go on there literally all night yes. because they had the license for that. And it felt very much more liberated than just like, 
when you go, even Legends, which was sometimes was open till six, there was always a vibe of like, oh, this is going to end at some point, so I need to get all my fun in yeah. in a small amount of time. Whereas Islington Mill just went on and on, and that oh, was yeah. part of the joy and why you felt so welcome there. Because it was like, yeah, once you arrive there, you know, I'm going to be here for the night because the party is starting and finishing here. It was yeah. definitely an all-in-one kind of venue. You weren't going to move from Islington Mill necessarily when you got there. Yeah, and then so, on some nights, it was like the party, like, it would be like after all the programming was done, so after everything that had been programmed had finished, the night would still carry on, mm. and then it would just be, all right, who wants to who wants to DJ? All right, I will. And then yeah. it would just kind of be coming after, as a bit of a lock-in. Yeah. And yeah, and so, yeah, it would just go on and on. And I guess because the space kind of had that 24-hour license, it was really good when we did the 24-hour John Waters movie oh, marathon. Yeah. That um, was going to be my next question, oh, okay. which was, well, what was, no, that's fine, what was our first event that we hosted at Islington Mill, not just involved in, but that we put on? Yeah, so the, yeah, the first event that we did was uh, the 24-hour John Waters movie marathon, because we were also kind of really interested in not just doing club events, but doing film events, screening events, interactive screenings, things like that. And then knowing that, like, we're like, oh, God, what venue is going to allow us to have, like, people sat in there for 24 hours watching John Waters films, being camp, you know what I mean, throwing eggs about. Like, we literally showed every single John Waters film. Yeah. Even we even managed to track down, like, Multiple Maniacs and some of the really rare ones. Yeah. The one where Divine gets uh, assaulted by a lobster. Yes. We showed that. Um yeah, that was quite a moment. I remember, actually, at that point, I still had a mullet. Yeah. And I dyed my mullet blue in tribute to David Lockery, who was one of the Dreamlanders who unfortunately died. But, yeah, that was, like, that was a big deal, putting that night on. And, I mean, full disclosure, we're both film geeks, and a big part of our relationship is, like, going to films and watching films together. <laughs> it's how we met. Do you want to tell them how we met? Oh, uh, yeah, so we met because I had a spare ticket to see Human Centipede. And upon Facebook, so I want to come see Human Centipede with me um, at home. And yeah, you took me up on it. So well, it was, was Corner House at that time. It wasn't oh, yeah, it was Corner House. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. of course. Yeah, oh, yeah. And also, that's a pro tip. If you go to see a film like Human Centipede with a complete stranger and you make it through to the very end, I think that that relationship is probably on a good footing. Yeah. But yeah, yeah so like films were a big part of what Tranarchy was influenced by and what we wanted to do as well. So we did the John Waters 24-hour screening. But we also did... What else did we do? Uh, so we did a teen movie sleepover. Uh, so then we did we did one 24 hours, and that was great. And it was part film screening, part endurance test. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went to one of the charity second-hand shops in Hume. And just I remember hiring a load of like battered old sofas from them because mm-hmm. like we combined them with them. Yeah, so we we hired them, so we kind of filled the club space in the mill with loads of old battered sofas and made it really comfy for people. Uh, and then that one went really well. And I, th- I think only one person that wasn't a promoter stayed there for twenty four hours <laughs> was uh, Rachel. Oh, and also people were crashing out and sleeping in the gallery. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, it was, it was really nice. And so I think from that one we realised well, maybe twenty four hours is a bit much. So then we'd do our twelve hour one. So we did the teen movie sleepover, and then we did the action movie sleepover. Um, but they were great events. And it, one thing that really struck me with about doing things at the Mill is just how 
there's always there's just millheads always around. There's just always there's always people around that are always that work in their studios, doing the bits and bobs that are really interested in what you're doing. And it's a really nice kind of people popping the nose in and people being really helpful. I remember like Alex McCart, who I didn't really know at the time, just helping me lug about eight sofas in the building mm. and like setting them up. Um, so that was one thing that I really got from the mill straight away from putting something on there was just how helpful everybody was and how mm. what a nice atmosphere that people were just like oh you're doing something interesting oh cool well I can help and mm. so vice versa do you know what I mean when you're putting something on you know people help you out and when somebody's putting somebody else putting something in you help them out so a really nice kind of um, yeah. I think it's quite fitting actually that John Waters was the first one that we did yeah because I think that was very on brand for Tranarchy yes because it was supposed to be like transgressive anarchy but also yeah. with you know transgender and also transvestite and stuff which is all big parts of John Waters yeah. kind of worldview as well but also I feel like the whole DIY ethos of what John Waters did for the first say half and mm. also into the rest of his films but mostly for the first yeah. like half of his career that was something that was very inspiring to us as well. Like, get all your friends together and just do it all together. Yeah. And the mill completely facilitated that. The yeah. mill felt like somewhere where, like, this is the place that can let that happen, where you can work with your friends to put that stuff on. Yeah, very DIY. Very DIY. Um, but I remember I also I took a post. I took the post that we had made for the 24-hour John Waters movie marathon to... John Waters went and he was out and he was doing signing and I showed it to him and I think I was giving him it giving it to him for him to sign mm. and he just kind of took it like to keep it and I was like oh okay and he said oh it was this like, is great can I keep it yeah and I was like <laughs> yeah okay uh, and then it was like wow I won't do his voice because I can't do it but he, I remember he looked at the poster and was like wow why would you do that <laughs> And I was like... They're your movies, mate. <laughs> and I was like, why would you do that? And he was like, oh, you know, it really reminds me of something Warhol did. And then I was like, oh, fuck, John Waters has just said that something we'd produced was like something Warhol did. did. So, so the Holy that's Trinity. Like, yeah, that's yeah. the that that best accolade there. Um, we also did, I remember one of my personal highlights mm-hmm. of working at Islington Mill was the day-to-day yep. omnibus that we did where we showed all six episodes of the day-to-day on the 20th anniversary of the day-to-day being broadcast. Yeah, That was a great one. Personally, it's one of my favourite, probably my favourite TV show of all time. So be able to put it on in a room and have, that one was busy. I don't yeah. know if you remember, that was busy. Like having so many people come out of the woodwork as mm. like closet day-to-day fans was a really big moment we also did a lovely screening of Nighty Night mm-hmm. the first series of Nighty Night we showed all six episodes of that back to back and we did Nathan Barley where we had a guest appearance by a completely unplanned guest appearance by one of the stars of Nathan Barley David Hoyle themselves mm-hmm. came down they were regaling us with lots of stories about like you know behind the scenes and like what these people are like in real life and stuff like that Um but enough of the films, what about the music and the kind of club promotion stuff? I think that the first thing we did as an actual music event was we did Vogue Brawl in, I think it probably would have been summer of 2013. Oh, and that was another great thing that we did. We did a photo shoot for Rock and Roll Suicide yes, again yeah. on the fifth floor of the mill with about 20 different folk yeah. from the kind of alternative and queer scenes all dolled up in punk 
punk finery and <laughs> those those photos are still floating around like there's some amazing photos yeah in the filthy warehouse very Derek Jarman-esque wasn't yeah, it yeah very, very yeah very um, also very Waters-esque yeah. as well those days of, yes well. um, yeah and then the first proper club event we did was Vogue Brawl there and that was fab um, we had the tiniest little runway <laughs> although I work in production now so I'll call it a thrust uh, we had the tiniest <laughs> little thrust mm-hmm. uh, we didn't matter it was, that, was, that was a really fun show and yeah. it was just kind of as we're, the more and more I put in these shows the more and more we're meeting new people and then people come into things and then the next project you work with them on it so yeah. it was really nice for that to kind of develop and build relationships and to kind of find meet fab people and then find like a platform for them find mm. like what can they do for the next events then we mm-hmm. moved Zombie Pride to Islington Mill because yep yeah, perfect spot for it mm-hmm. um, and there's a big like just for people who are listening who may not know um, both Vogue Brawl and Zombie Pride have a very big get dressed up and show show yeah. off show off it turn up in a look yeah show that look off and if you are good enough you might win a prize yeah and I think like at this point in culture Vogue is very popular and ballroom is you've got shows like Pose and Legendary and just everyone seems to be jumping on the, the Vogue voguing bandwagon at some point. But back then, like when we started Vogue Brawl in 2011, and even when we went to Islington Mill with it in 2013, it was still a very new thing for people who aren't on that part of the queer scene to experience. With kind of each Vogue Brawl, we'd have to um, inform, we'd have to teach an audience about what it actually was. Mm-hmm. So we'd, we'd screened Paris is Burning. Yeah. Um, we had a lovely Q&A session yeah. after one of the Paris is Burning screenings which was great i think we had adam beyonce low and khalil west and i think it was hosted by stephanie davis um yeah that was definitely a big part of like at this point i mean because the things for me i'm quite involved in the ballroom scene anyway but i know that i'm a white middle class cisgender person so a big part of what my role in ballroom is is to inform other white people who are not part of that scene what it is and what it is that they need to be respectful of, and what this culture is trying to achieve, and stuff like that. And I think by the time 2013 came around, and it was getting a bit more attention, that kind of educational aspect of doing Vogue Brawl and showing Vogue culture to people who are not involved in it was a very big part of that for us, I think. Um, And, you know, I kind of like to think that we did that quite well. I think so. I think we... I mean, and through doing those those Vogue brawls, I think also we did we did go to the kind of effort to not really call them Vogue balls. We called them Vogue brawls mm-hmm. because they weren't, they, you know what I mean? They weren't technically balls because mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's rules and regulations, rules and regulations to real ballroom. That, yeah, and there's and and you know what I mean because we're not, you know yeah. what I mean? We're not the the people to do that. But we did these really. I'd say they were like Vogue inspired events. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I mean, through, but through doing those, we got to meet like Darren Pritchard, mm-hmm. and we got to meet people that were involved in that scene, that community, and it was, and we learned a lot from it, and we learned a lot about where to place ourselves in doing these events, and also mm-hmm. it means that we got to meet people who we could work with and and build and build relationships with people that we can still work with today. Um, One of the lovely things I think about doing Vogue Brawl, I remember looking back on it now, is some of the feedback that we got from the kind of mill regular crew mm -hmm. and the people who worked and lived at the mill at the time who'd never really been exposed to anything like that. And I remember um, somebody telling me that it was like the atmosphere, because basically just to, you know, a quick kind of explanation of what Vogue Brawl is, like you said, there'd be a runway and you arrive in a look, which is 
you know, dictated to by a certain category. There's categories and people do runways. They walk up and down the runway and the judges and the crowd vote for who they think is the best mm-hmm. dressed and the best dancer and the best look, who gives the best interpretation of what a category is, etc. And it gets really, really rowdy because mm-hmm. people love it and people love having that moment to show themselves off in all their weirdness, but also all their finery. Mm-hmm. And also the people really give, really respond to that. So it's always very hyped. There's always a lot of noise. People get really into it and get very worked up and there's always lots of shouting. And I think it was Chris who used to work at the bar and he used to live in the mill, told me that he'd never seen anything like that in queer culture up to that point, but it really reminded him of like a hip hop battle. Mm. And he was really pleased to see that queer culture had its own equivalent of something like a hip-hop battle. And it was really lovely for me to hear that, to be like, gay basically getting respect in the queer, in the straight world, Mm. you know? And it's not necessarily by pandering to the straight world either. It's just by doing what we do as best as we can, but have a space where straight people can come along and watch it as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that with um, us doing Tranaki events that is in Tamil, it was a really good opportunity for us to show off this great space mm. to this kind of new kind of queer artist scene, this new like queer audience, because I think that... I think we were the most overtly queer thing that happened there. I think that very much our brand was so based around outsider queerness and queerness in itself as being outsider even though stuff that had happened at the mill up to that point may, like, Club Brenda um, definitely is a queer night, and from what, like, I got from Jane Compton in the last interview that we did, it was a safe space for queer people to come, but it wasn't necessarily sold as a queer night. It was just a night that just happened to be that. Whereas we came through very forcefully going, no, we're gay, and... You know, and some of us are trans and some of us are lesbians and some of us are non-binary, some of us are pansexual, whatever, all that stuff. We're like, no, we are this thing and this is what we want to celebrate and this is what we want to sell and this is why we want to use this space because we know that this space is a very safe, accepting place for that to happen. Yes, it was really important for us to kind of bring those like fab, dressy, draggy, freaky, queer people to the mill because we knew that once they got there it was safe for them um, and it was a really great place for that expression Um, and I think we did really well in kind of bringing that audience to the mill and Mm. getting that audience to really engage with the mill Um, and it was nice to have that fab draggy moment at the mill Mm. at a space that is you know what I mean? That's that's known for kind of heavy metal gigs and, mm, and known noise. for yeah noise. It was yeah and that. So I mean, and that's the great thing about the mill is that it is this great melting pot, mm. um, and that all those things can exist there together, and all those things can be symbiotic with each other. They can all feed off of each other um, and appreciate each other. So yeah, I think that's what was really special. For us, um, because when you think is when you run a queer night, when you run, you've got a lot of responsibility that you put on yourself because you have got to make sure that you're bringing people that are quite vulnerable, mm-hmm. well, not quite, but not quite, that are vulnerable, um, especially if they're all dragged up and all dressed up. Then yep. you know what I mean. They are. So you've got a big responsibility when you put on events to make sure that that those people are going to be safe. And you can't, you can't guarantee, you, you, you can't, but you can do your best. Mm-hmm. So 
we were confident in the fact that we could do that at the mill, and mm. and we did. Um, mm. And I think once we got into our stride and once we got comfortable at the mill is then when we really went full force and I think that's what led us to Bummer Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell everybody <laughs> what Bummer Camp. Camp is? Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. Because, I mean, there's a bit of a lead-up to Bummer Camp as well. So at this point, we had already been working with Riv Burns, as we talked about, who was running off with their heads and also just programming stuff into the mill. I mean, if you want to know mill, uh, Riv's story at the mill, it's literally the first interview in this interview series. So go back and listen to that and you'll get all the details that you need. But Riv was programming stuff at the mill and she'd, um, I think she'd come to some of our stuff at Legends and stuff. I knew what the deal was and really liked it. But before we um, actually did Tranarchy or Vrobol or um, Zombie Pride stuff at the mill, we had kind of formed a live performance collective called Tranarchy Sound System, which was a lot of people which were involved in the Tranarchy crew at the time. Um, and like you were performing as Joyce Division. Yep. I was performing as the Nihilist. We had Pam Van Damned. We had Kurt Dirt. We had loads of dancers. A lot of our friends just wanted to get dressed up and turn a look and show off on stage with us and become involved in the performances. Um, so Rivet started booking us to perform at Islington Mill as Tranarchy Sound System and also me as an Nihilist and also Kirk Dirt. And because we were close friends and ran in all the same circles, basically when a Kurt Dirt show got put on, I was in Kurt's band and you were in Kurt's band. Mm-hmm. And also when a Nihilist show came on, like you were dancing for me. If Kurt was around, I'd get him on stage and blah, blah, blah. So we did a lot of crossover gigs. We had our own little, very healthy little kind of performance scene we had going within Tranarchy at the time. So Riv booked some of us to perform at the mill. I think there was one Chew Disco where they had booked Punk Bunny to come over from the States, but unfortunately Punk Bunny wasn't allowed into the country. Their green card got revoked or something really awful like that. So at the last minute, um, myself and Kurt Dirt were asked to perform at the mill. And I think that was literally the first time I performed at the mill, which is really nice. I do have good memories of that gig. It was really good. And also what happened afterwards upstairs. Um, And then there was, I got booked to support Mickey Blanco. I got to do a warm-up set for Mickey fucking Blanco. Like, that was incredible. Um, Mickey had just started putting out their music at that point, but nobody really knew full... full <coughs> excuse me. Nobody really fully knew Mickey or what they were about and what they were doing at that point. So it was cool that Mickey Blanco was coming to the mill, that we'd all get to see Mickey's show. But, oh my God, I think the Mickey Blanco show was one of the most incredible shows I've ever seen at that space so intense and so transformative like there was a point at that time i believe mickey was um presenting mostly as a cis man but very also had a very femme side and would drag up and there was one point about halfway through the show with this really intense hip-hop music that mickey just stripped off and then started doing a reverse strip tease and at the end of that they were femme so it was this incredible show that was playing with gender and all that. And I got to be a part of that by supporting them. It was incredible. I'm really proud of that. Off the back of the Mickey Blanco show, um, we teamed up with Riff Burns to put on an event called Bummer Camp. And the reason that we put Bummer Camp on was because we had been offered to put on the act Christine from the States, who is absolute all-time legend. I compare Christine to being the queer public enemy. Basically, Christine is a drag 
performance artist, and even that that term in and of itself just is doesn't do the Christine justice. Christine is just an incredible performer that is all about sex and gender and queerness. And I had done some music with Christine the year previous to that, and then Paul, which is Christine's alter ego, reached out to me and said, "I want to do gigs in the UK. Is there anybody who'd be interested in putting this on?" So first person I spoke to was Riv. Just straight away, Riv, there was absolutely no question. It was like, yes, how much are they after? We'll get that money and we will put that on. I think we did do a little bit of negotiation to knock the price down because it was a lot. But, like, you know, within a few, two or three days of this being an idea, it was a reality. Mm -hmm. Christine was booked in and we decided to make an entire thing around that, which was called Bummer Camp. So, like you said, the mill had a 24-hour license. So we were like... We're going to go full on. Like, Christine is an icon for us. Mm. And we are getting to put on literally their first ever show in the UK. Um, so we went full out with doing everything for that. The other beautiful thing that happened with Bummer Camp that year is that it wasn't very long after that, that another musical icon of ours, Sean, Cody... Um, Cody... Critchlow. Cody Critchlow. That's their real name, but Sean is what we called him. Um, incredible queer synth pop dance pop but beautiful um i don't really know how to describe sean it's a little bit like oh, i don't know boy george meets roisin murphy or something like that but anyway within a couple of weeks of booking in christine cody got in touch with us as well it was like i'm also looking for gigs in the uk is there anywhere and we were like oh fuck man we just booked christine there's no way we're going to be able to afford this but I said it to Riv, I was just, oh, by the way, Sean is also looking for gigs. Again, without blinking an eye, in the beat of a heart, Riv was just like, how much? We'll do it. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, are you sure? Because we've already booked Christine. I don't know if blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they, were, they couldn't perform on the same night. I think our dream was to have them both on the same gig, but we couldn't do it at the same night. So what we did was we split Bummer Camp into two events. The first event was the really long 24-hour club night thing. Um, and then the second, which was Christine, that was Christine's debut UK show. And then the second event, which I believe was about three or four days later, was Sean Gig in the same space as well. And the Sean Gig was literally a gig. It wasn't a club night. It was just like a, a gig gig, mm -hmm. like a performance by a band. And yeah, and those, so we did a thing called Bummer Camp to include both of these gigs by our, some of our musical icons that we were getting to put on. And also for the Sean gig, we did a live support, which was Tranarchy Sound System featuring Kurt Dirt. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our friends came down for that and like took part in the show itself. We were dancing around and making tits of themselves on stage, as we all do, in a beautiful way. Um, yeah, it was Bummer Camp. Yeah, it just seemed to crystallize something about, I think... What we were trying to say there earlier about, like, the mill... It's not that the mill wasn't queer, but the mill was just, like, this arty alternative space. And because it was that, you kind of expect an element of queerness in there. So, yeah, and, like, some of the people running it are queer. Like, that's just a given. But I feel, even more than Tranarchy, I think it was Bummer Camp. And, like, that name, Bummer Camp, was kind of, like, nailing our flag to the mast and going, like, we are the f-bombs that your parents weren't you know worried about like this is it like we do represent that culture because we are those people we are queer as fuck 
And if you're going to come here, this is what you can expect. And I would think like, yeah, like you said, it wasn't that the mill wasn't queer, but I feel like those series of events that we put on was kind of like the mill coming out of the closet and going, there's not just queer people involved in this. This space is queer and we are here to put this out there into the world. Well, I think it was one of the first times that the mill had put its queer identity literally on the front of the building because <laughs> we worked out that the number of like these poster slots in the front of the mill. A0. A0. And we counted that there were enough to spell out Bummer Camp. So we made a poster. And so right on the front of the mill, you just had Bummer Camp in massive letters. Yeah. Um, and obviously the mill's opposite of school, but this was during summertime, so the kids weren't in school, even yeah. though it did get... We actually got quite a lot of complaints from the residents about it, but that was fine. It was just putting our stamp on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think somebody said at like a town hall meeting, they were just like, and Bummer Camp, that's disgusting because that's not even legal. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It, it definitely rubbed up some people the wrong way, mm. but it also didn't matter because it was about establishing the mill's identity as mm. that space. And I think what I was saying earlier about how when you put on these things at the mill, everybody helps out and that happened again mm, with mm-hmm. Bummer Camp so we're aware that we're aware that the mill is not in the city centre and that there was a lot of things going on that night there was um, was it a Sleater Kinney gig there was there was a gig on at the Ritz there was other things happening in the city and we were aware that people would be at these these other things that were happening even though we were going on late so we had the idea to do the bummer bus and we'd just have a bus that would go around the city mm. and it would pick people up from the city centre and we'd just do this for free just because, you know what I mean, just taxi people there. Mm. Um, also just to, because people might not want to be in full drag walking through town. Mm. And I remember that like none of us in Tranicky can drive, but Jamie, uh, MPTV, Jamie Robinson, Alex can drive and so they were so they, they pitched in and they were like yeah we'll drive the bummer bus and we decorated the cars we wrote bummer bus <laughs> on the side draped loads of fabric we made them look really cat- and we did try and get a big bus but it just wasn't feasible so I think we just hired two cars mm-hmm. two big cars and that was a really nice moment for like these like just straight lads just being really chuffed to be driving this taxi around that just says bummer bus on it and to be picking people up and they all pitched in you know mm-hmm. um, and it was that thing where they all helped out because they all everyone's a stakeholder in the mill and everyone wants it to do well and everyone wants to like you know what I mean the, the, the more stuff that's happening there the better and let's you know what I mean let's really do the best that we can with it and make it as fun for everyone so yeah it was another example with bummer, with bummer camp as well about the whole building working together and that was the one where we had the bouncy castle mm-hmm. because it was kind of bummer camp summer camp this day so yeah, we summer camp. yeah so we had the because we know we got the big courtyard so probably the worst thing you could put when you bring in a lot of drag queens tea venue is a bouncy castle because <laughs> what's number one fucking rule no stiletto stilettos are a no-no and yeah, we did have to pull a queen off in heels. Yeah, um, but it survived. But it, yeah, it's that, and yeah, God, it survived. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and it was undercover. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? And I remember that bummer camp day. I worked a full twenty-four hours producing the show, like from picking Christine up at the airport mm-hmm. to the next day taking the band to Castle down and meeting the people. It was full twenty-four hours, and this was pre-drugs for me as well. So. Mm-hmm. Christ, young, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean, just young. And I mean, um, like, and even without, you know, 
I was when we were prepping for this interview earlier. I was asking like, what's your favorite gig that ever happened at the mm. mill that you weren't involved in? Because, oh my God, Christine live shows. Mm. The Christine live shows are life changing. Mm. <coughs> it's incredible. It's just affirming of any kind of queer identity. It builds a community around those queer identities, but also other kinds of identities that are just looking for a home. The music is incredible. And literally every single person who came to that show was just like, that is one of the best live shows I've ever seen. We've since worked with Christine in some other venues as well. We've also put on the Christine show in the White Hotel. And Chips, who works um, in a studio behind the mill, but also does PAs and stuff and works at... Uh, White Hotel, he's seen a lot of stuff in his time, like, he's no no offence Chips, but you're not exactly a spring chicken like, you're quite old, but even he said, he stayed on to do the sound that night, and he told me after, he's like, I'm so glad I decided to do the sound that night, because that was one of the best live shows I've ever seen so, the Christine show just the fact that we were able to bring that to Islington Mill to Greater Manchester, to the north of England, to the UK, is just like, for me, a very, very proud achievement that I've done in my life. And I'm really happy that we got to do that in conjunction with Islington Mill and all the beautiful, wonderful people who work at mm. Islington Mill and who helped us to put that on. So, you know, I'm dead chuffed that one of the best gigs I've ever seen in my life was also something that I was involved in putting on. It's yeah. really amazing. Like. I think Christine was the perfect kind of meeting point between the two worlds. So... Because Christine is very transgressive, mm. um, and the music's very good, and mm. it's it's very intense, mm-hmm. and it's you know it is it's it's quite polished as yeah, well. The show, it's polished, yeah, but it's also very very queer. So it mm. kind of it was like the two worlds of the mill at that time, like really coming together. Mm-hmm. So it really, it so that kind of. So you know, so you know what I mean. So, so for the lads in Nod, it was fu- they fucking loved it mm-hmm. because it was hard, because it yeah. was heavy, because yeah. it was raw and it was aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then us fags loved it as well because it was all those things. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it was filthy and because it was drag, and, and it of was course queer as fuck. So it was just the perfect kind of mix of those two worlds, and it was kind of um, not to mention the fact that she came out on stage with a butt plug yeah. upper arse tied to a helium balloon, which she then managed to. Yeah take out of her arse, swing around, throw into the audience and hit someone in the face. So I remember when uh, Christine and the two dancers, uh, Carlos and Thomas, arrived. I think they were quite nervous because Christine hadn't done much work outside of America at that point. I think Mm. this was their first... We we were their first UK gig. I think they'd... I think we were their first European gig as well, maybe. No, no, they'd done Berlin before or they'd done some stuff Mm. before, but not a lot. Yeah, we weren't the first European, but we were the first British. So they 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 were... and I remember they were very new and I think they were quite nervous and I remember that like as soon as he stepped into the courtyard in the mill they were just so relaxed and they were and once they came into the mill they stayed at the B&B obviously and it was it was kind of an instant connection with them it was really instant that it was just that they they felt so relaxed there they got into the space and they understood the space instantly and then ever since whenever they've returned it's kind of been like a homecoming for them like whenever they come back mm. They do, we you know. I mean, we put them up at the mill, and they yeah. feel at home there. So that's really nice. That's really special for us because it really was like 
kind of um, kindred spirits, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, yeah, so those Bubba Camp shows were really, really successful. And I we think did, that, how many, we, we did 14, 15, 16, 17, I think we did five Christine shows. Yeah, we, well, we did two Bubba Camps. So I'll go through it. So we did Bummer Camp 1, Bummer Camp 2. Yeah. Then Christine came over for Sounds of the City. Yeah. Then they did, um, they just did a, it was kind of a Christine gig. It wasn't a yeah. full Bummer Camp and that was for Bill's birthday uh-huh. and a fundraiser for the mill. Yeah. And then... There was a year missed out. There was, there was one a year yeah, there was a year come. missed out and then the last two have been at the White have Hotel. Been at the White Hotel. So yeah. it was, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, gosh, yeah. So it's and every time they come, they, they stay at the mill. So it's, yeah. Um, mm. So yeah. So I guess for us, kind of bummer camp was kind of the moment where it all really fully came together for us. And I think that's kind of when it works best is when all parties are kind of working together. And it was yeah, yeah. It was a great event. So we've been talking about the events and the stuff that we've put on Islington Mill, but there is something that we touched on earlier in the interview. That we're going to go back to now, which was, I don't. Basically, you did four in a bed yes. at Islington Mill. Tell us about that. How did that come about? What was that? What was that? Uh, so yes, a production company uh, approached Islington Mill because um, the researcher had obviously seen that it was a B and B, and obviously they're looking for quirky, quirky B and Bs to go on telly. And um, the people that actually ran the B and B didn't want to go on telly. But they knew that two show-offs in the mill definitely would. Um, so they asked uh, me and Louise Woodcock to go on it. And I think we both just did it just for complete self-promotion. Lou was pushing Trish, uh, her character, and then I kind of wanted to go on and push Joyce Division. Even though I hadn't done it for a while, I thought, ah, fuck it, let's just go on TV. And I Ooh. always think any opportunity to go and be visibly queer on TV, especially on, like, daytime shite TV like that you should take it and you should do it really yeah. um, and also because stupidly fucking hell I thought I was going to get a holiday out of it I thought oh this will be really nice I'll get to stay in some lovely places I'll have some nice dinners do you know what I mean I actually thought I was going to have a holiday from it mm-hmm. um, and I also thought that we were going to make some money from it but neither of those things happened <laughs> uh, because you don't get paid to go far in a bed because um, you're effectively promoting your business. So they don't pay you because they're like, well, your business will do really well from it. Well, it might do. It all depends on how they edit you and how you are. Um, but we don't run the B&B, so we don't see any of that money. <laughs> we don't get any of that money. So we've got like per diems, like 25 quid a day per diems, and that was it. So it was it was definitely an experience. Um, it wasn't the relaxing, calm holiday that I think I was expecting, stupidly. It's just having a camera stuck in your face as soon as you wake up and then being on ice, uh, which is the term in the biz for it, is when they're not filming, you can't speak to anybody because if uh, relationships develop and information comes out and they've not got it on camera, it doesn't make sense for the show. So it's all completely false. You have to walk into a room 15 times uh, the most degrading part is you film you while eating, but then they also, if you're filming, if you're sat around having dinner talking, that will take probably three hours. So they put your dinner down in front of you, and then they go, you can't eat your dinner until we say. So you just sat there with your dinner in front of you, and you're having to 
really say, oh, what did you say? Oh, I, I, I like your curtains in your guest bathroom. Can you say that again? Oh, I love your curtains in your guest bathroom. No, you said like, oh, so you have to just repeat things over and over again and you forget what you've said. It's horrible. It's a right head fuck. <laughs> just while your dinner's just looking at you in front of you and then they're like, can you eat a little bit? So you have to kind of just eat like a chip and then half eat and put it back down and then they're like, oh, now I want to film you eating. Like you're really enjoying it. And it's awful. It's so degrading. Um, a pleasant experience yeah, then. Yeah. Um, me and Louise are doing this and we'd not really thought that like, oh, the people that are on this are proper like professional B&Bers. So they were talking all this lingo and asking us like, oh, who does your laundry? Who does this? Who manages this? And me and Lou had no fucking clue. We were just like, do you know what I mean? Just there for the show, <laughs> just there for the camp of it. And so it kind of, I think it started to be revealed as it went on that like, we know fucking nothing. We don't actually run this B&B, but we had to like pretend that we did. So it was like going on falling to bed, but also going on like faking it or something and like us having to keep up this appearance that we actually ran this B&B, which we don't. Mm-hmm. And God bless, I think every time it gets re-aired, re-aired people always like email the mail going, oh, Joe and Louise going to be there. And like, <laughs> no. So yeah, it was funny. Um, I think my favourite standout line from it is that I get really serious with this bastard called Peter who was fucking horrible on it, right, sexist pig. Anyway, that's inside scoop for you. Uh, my favourite line is, because he's really gone in for these two lasses that run a great B&B, and he's and I just go, as far as I'm concerned, Peter, there's only two rules in bed and breakfast. Bed and breakfast. TV gold. <laughs> Yeah, and we were outside the Pier Hat last week, and... Yeah, it's something that just you... Oh, isn't it great that things are opening up again? No, because now I'm getting pissed dickheads wobbling towards me. Oh, we all that four in a bed, and God bless them, like, you know what I mean? But I just, it really wasn't... <laughs> it's just like, and you have to humour them and go, yeah, no, it was actually horrible. Oh, I know, wasn't that pizza horrible? You know what I mean? And yeah, so... Um, but it's fine. But yeah, so it's just like losing an anonymity for absolutely yeah. no pay. <laughs> but I'm glad we did it. And I think I think we did a really good job. I'm really proud of like how we represented the mill. Mm-hmm. I think we represented the mill in a really good way because we just didn't take it seriously at all. I mean, and we did it well. We actually, no, we did have a good time. We had a good time taking the piss out of it. There were moments of it that were horrible. Um, but then there, there were some fab moments in it. That was that, really, yeah. Um, you took one for the team. Yeah, team we did, yeah. Mill. Yeah, and I'm glad that the mill got on telly. Mm-hmm. It was funny. Yeah. Yeah. So let's round this off by moving away from what was, sounds like actually not a very pleasant experience <laughs> no. making that show, into what's, what is your favourite gig that you've ever been to at the mill? Or what is your favourite thing that you've ever been to at the mill? Like, what's your favourite memory from the mill? Oh, well, I don't know, like... Well, that there's, there's obviously there's so many. I think my favourite ever, ever gig was for the fat closing part, it was Klaus Kinski. That was really, really fun. There are some great yeah. photos of you online that going was wild really in that mosh fun. pit. Yeah, that mosh pit was brilliant. Like, I really, really hurt myself that night. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God, yeah. Um, yeah, that was really good. Mm. 
Um, Mel Browner, that was a brilliant show. Oh, yeah. That was really, awesome. really good. Loads of really good... Yeah, there's so many good mosh pits, so many, like, fucked-up knees. There's so many times I've come home from Mel with, like, black, filthy knees, mm. um, which to me is, like, a sign of a good night is a filthy knee. Well, you just said it there, but I don't think you meant in the way that I'm going to say it, but fucked up at yeah. the mill was one of my favourite gigs mm, there. Yeah. That was so good. I remember... Um, that was, I think, quite early on in our relationship. I don't think even we were a couple at that point. We were still just mates. But I remember um, Damien, the singer from Fucked Up, is quite a big man himself, which is why they're such an attractive band to us, apart mm-hmm. from the fact that they're actually really good. But he was swinging off the bloody pipes off the roof. Yeah. And we were like, because it's this intense mosh pit crowd for yeah. Fucked Up. And they really go for it. They really like get the crowd to get into it. And he was swinging off the pipes. And I remember us thinking, oh my God, is he going to break those pipes? Yeah. But he never did because no. those pipes are probably going to be there after oh, the yeah. nuclear holocaust. Like those pipes at the mill ain't going anywhere unless somebody comes along with a circular saw and gets rid of them. Mm. Um, I have some other good memories though. One of my personal favorite memories. I mean like gigs as well, like men, JD Sampson's oh, men. Yeah. That was amazing seeing them. Um, I mean, all the gigs that I was involved in, that we were involved in, like Mickey Blanco, Sean, Christine. um, When we did the Orbit thing, we saw Planning to Rock that Mm -hmm. evening in the same venue. That was amazing. That was so good. Um, There's probably loads. I mean, like the smaller stuff, like kind of like smaller scale, more local, like stoner metal stuff, like Bad Guys and Bong, bands like that, Nod. Of course, yeah. not every, every sounds after party that ends. Yeah, <laughs> ends um. the mill. Uh, so many nice memories of just waking up in random studios as well. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. But mm. I have one, and I think this is where we should end it because this is a really nice one. One of my personal favourite memories of Islington Mill is going to see the room. Oh yeah, going to a screening of the cult classic really bad so bad it's actually so bad it's amazing trash movie called the room which came out in about 2005 and has since built up into being an absolute like midnight Mm. movie masterpiece where people interact with the screen and throw throw things at the screen and have like shout long lines and stuff like that um but it was actually me and you had it was the first time that we had ever gone out in public as a couple. Oh. Yeah, as a couple. Because we'd been friends for about a year before we finally kind of said to each other, I've got feelings. Mm-hmm. And you were like, I've got feelings too. And you're like, oh, let's do this. And I was quite nervous because it was the first going out in public with you and actually having like PDAs with you in front of other people where other people could see that we were now a couple. And I was really nervous of it. But it was really, really lovely, and it was because I was with you, and, you know, it was quite romantic as well. But it was also because the room is so daft. Like, the first 20 minutes, I was sat there going, what is this movie? It's just rubbish. Mm. And then it just gets more and more rubbish, to the point where you're literally, like, your jaws dropping. I can't believe somebody paid money to make this film. So, yeah, that's a very special memory for me, is going to see The Room with Mm. you, as a couple, I think it was. I actually think it was literally our first outing to the cinema to see a film together. Um, was to see the room at Islington Mill, and here we are, ten oh. years later, still together. Very nice. Very nice. Let's end it there. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
And thus endeth episode four of Islington Mill is Queer with special interview guest, the Joe Spencer. I hope you enjoy that as much as we did recording it. And all going according to plan, we will be back next month with um, a return to the schedule, which I'm not going to tell you what that is just because I don't want to jinx it. But all you have to do is come back here in a few weeks time and keep checking the Mixcloud, mixcloud.com forward slash Islington Mill. And in the meantime, there's nothing left for me to do but to uh, wish you a merry rest of your summer. And let's hope there's a speedy end to this goddamn pandemic. Yeah.